Let's stand and take our Bibles tonight. We're going to have a great Bible study this evening. And I want you to go to First Chronicles chapter 19. Now, you have to hang with me from the very first point on or you're going to be lost. It's a great Bible study tonight. And as I was in the Word this week, God just kind of worked in my heart about this. And I'll be honest with you, by about Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock, I was ready to preach it then. I was just bubbling over with stuff on this. And it's a good chapter. It's a good, good, good amount of things here. We're going to go see a passage in the New Testament that will help us with that. Now, I want you to do me a favor tonight. We have visitors and guests here tonight. And by the way, I want to welcome Raymond, who's here tonight. This is Laura's, Laura, uh, uh, Alicia's husband, who's here tonight. I'm thankful he's here tonight. And then we have a new friend that's been coming to our church for the last uh, two or three weeks here. Uh, Anna Lopez is here tonight. I'm thankful Anna's here. And there's several others like that. You're here tonight. And we're glad you're here tonight. I want you as a member to find someone who's either new to the church or someone who, who's not familiar with the Bible. I want you to sit with them and I want you to have the notes ready just to help them tonight. This is going to be a great Bible study tonight. That I want you to just be a part of with me this evening. I don't want you to miss it. If you miss the first two points, you're going to miss the main point, which is the last point. So please stay with it tonight. It is a very, very great Bible study tonight. It's going to help us this evening. And uh, I'm just asking God for special wisdom and help as we preach it tonight and uh, that the Lord would give us wisdom there. First Chronicles 19, right in the margin there, if you would. Second Samuel 10. These are exactly parallel passages. A few words are a little bit different They're because of the different writers, but the passage context is the same. And uh, you're going to read this and you're going to say, wow, I didn't know this was there. I didn't know it was there too, but God has some things for us. And I'm going to give you a chapter in the New Testament soon that we're going to look at that this kind of just unveils a New Testament doctrine that's also found in the Old Testament. It's a Bible doctrine that's, that's here in, in illustration and symbol that we're going to find is, that's uh, made mention to us in a very, very uh, powerful way in, in, in the New Testament. Now, we're going to read some lengthy passages of Scripture. Please bear with me tonight because all 19 verses are going to apply to us. I don't plan to keep here to midnight, but uh, we're going to try to keep going here and just try to get done a decent time. I know that parents have to get their kids home, and some of you need to catch up with the hour of sleep that you had. I talked to some people today, and they said they overslept, and we're trying to think, okay, you turned the clock back one hour and you overslept. But uh, I guess that happens, amen, you know, and I, and I wish I had that luxury. I, I told you this morning, I've been up since 2 o'clock, and I'm wide-eyed, and I'm not sure what else there right now, but we're going to have a good time. Verse not, Chapter 19, verse 1. Now, it came to pass after this that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his stead. And David said, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. You want to know those two words, kindness, were carrying over from last week, if you remember last week. And David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. So the servants of David came into the land of the children of Ammon to Hanan, or Hanan, to comfort him. But the princes of the children of Ammon said to Hanan, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he has sent comforters unto thee? Are not his servants come unto thee for to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Now, you might want to write there under verse 3 in the margin notes, David was being slandered. Wherefore, Hanan took David's servants and shaved them. That means they took their beards and basically wiped their beards off. And shaved off their garments in the midst hard by their buttocks and sent them away. Then there went certain and told David how the men were served. And he sent to meet them for the men were greatly shamed. And the king said, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. 
when the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious, and the word odious means to stink, they made themselves odious to David. Hanan and the children of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver. And underline that phrase, a thousand talents of silver. A talent, weigh, a talent of silver weighed between 90 and 100 pounds. That's a lot of money to hire mercenaries. They sent a thousand talents of silver to hire them chariots and horsemen out of Mesopotamia and out of Syria, uh, Maica, out of Zo- and out of Zobah. So they hired, notice this, 32,000 chariots and the king of Maica and his people who came and pitched before uh, Mediba. And the children of Ammon gathered themselves together from their cities and came to battle. So there were the Syrians and the Ammonites that joined together. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon, Ammon came out and put the battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings were come out by themselves in the field. And I understand, kind of visualize the stories. I read this. David sent out Joab and his men. They're going to the city of Ammon, where the Ammonites were, where Hanan was at. As they approached the gate of the city, the Ammonites were prepared for battle. Behind Joab and his men were the Syrians that were hired out. And among those, there were 32,000 chariots. Verse 10, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him before and behind, he chose out of all the choice of Israel and he put them in a raid against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai's brother. They set themselves in array against the children of Ammon. They split themselves up. Joab against the Syrians. Abishai against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will help thee. Be of good courage and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God. And let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. So Joab and his people that were with him drew nigh before the Syrians into the battle. And they, that is the Syrians, they fled before him. When the children of Ammon were, saw that the Syrians were fled, they likewise fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered to the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. That is, they fled, they went into hiding. When the Syrians saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they sent messengers and drew forth the Syrians that were beyond the river. And Shopak and the Cap, the captain host of Hadarezer went before them and was told David and he gathered all Israel and passed over Jordan and came upon them and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with them. But the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots and 40,000 footmen and killed Shophak, the, the captain of the host. And when the servants of Hadarezer saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they made peace with David. And became his servants, neither would the Syrians help the children of Ammon anymore. Father, tonight we thank you for the scriptures which have been read. And we thank you for the services today and the good crowd of people that were here. Thank you for the two ladies, the two sisters in Christ, accepted Christ as their Savior in recent weeks. And, and Lord, they unashamedly declared their profession of faith in Christ by following him in believer's baptism today. Thank you today, Lord, for the adults that were saved and the gospel seed that was sown and the word that was preached. And we know that today that the word of God does not return to you void. We thank you today for the special work of grace in our hearts. And we look now tonight as we look at the subject of grace tonight, but the despising of grace. About what one man has called the unkindest cut. We pray this evening that you speak to our hearts Open thou our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Order our steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over us. Lord, give us a teachable spirit. 
We're reminded tonight in Psalms 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And the Bible says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, in the keeping of them there is great reward. And tonight, Lord, we ask for a spirit of teachability and a spirit of meekness. We ask tonight that you would cleanse our hearts and cleanse our lives from things that would keep us from understanding your word. And God, I pray tonight as a result of the preaching of our, your word this night, we pray that out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water. We pray tonight that, Lord, you be glorified in the lives of your people. And I pray that you help us to understand the matter of the spirit of grace and how we should treat the spirit of grace and live for him. Tonight, I pray for those watching by live stream and those who are out of town or those who are sick and whose bodies are infirmed. And maybe even some here tonight in our congregation who are not feeling very well and sick. I pray that you'd minister to their physical and their spiritual needs. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need you to touch our hearts and we need you to speak to our lives. I pray tonight for those who may not know Christ as their savior, that tonight's message would help them to understand their great need of Jesus Christ and saving their souls. And tonight, Lord, we commit to you this service and what you'll do. I pray for Lord, a spirit of revival that you'll give us. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I titled the message tonight, the unkindest cut. The kindest cut comes from a phrase that was given by Shakespeare when he did a play dealing with Julius Caesar and the assassination of Julius Caesar by those who were closest to him. And he termed that he was referring to those who were his friends who came behind and knifed Julius Caesar. And he called it the unkindest cut. The word here that we're looking at tonight is this matter of the grace of God and the despising of God's grace. This evening, as we look at this matter of kindness and unkindness, we see the worst insult or ultimate treachery that can be committed by an individual, by a group of people. This evening, we're looking at how a, the worst insult a person can make to God. And I want us to deal tonight with our relationship with God. We talked about that this morning. And we want to deal with the fact that even though God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, we must understand tonight that God takes very highly how we respond or react to him. And we re, when we react, respond inappropriately to God, that is called, as we'll see tonight, a despising of the grace of God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit works in our heart. And He's the dispenser of grace by on behalf of the Trinity and working in our hearts. And we're going to see a great story about this here in chapter 19. What happens when God's grace is despised and spurned by His people? And so tonight we want to get right into our study this evening because of time and allow the Holy Spirit to instruct and teach us. Notice tonight as we look at the Scriptures in verses 1 and 2, the very first thing I want you to see tonight are, are the abounding mercies. We looked at last time when David in chapter 9 was, uh, he was at a time of rest and respite in his kingdom. There was a season where there was no wars, there was no more fighting. In the previous chapter, in, in uh, second, second Samuel chapter 8, David had won victorious battles, uh, one after the other, over the Philistines and over the Ammonites. And so there was peace in his kingdom. The enemies had reckoned that David was a force to be reckoned with, and they did not want to mess with him. And during that time of rest, David is thinking about people. And he's, he was the first person he thought about in 2 Samuel chapter 9 was, was of the household of Jonathan. 
And he said, is there any of the household of Jonathan that I may show kindness to? And as we saw that last week, I mentioned to you where the word kindness is, right in your margin, the word grace. And we see that extended here in chapter uh, chapter 19 of 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel 10 as well. There, David starts off by saying, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash. And we notice that back in 2 Samuel 9, David's heart is filled with, with the desire to serve. He's filled with the desire to extend his grace. And as we looked at the example of David extending extending his grace to Mephibosheth by way of review, we saw that grace was extended because of another person. We saw that grace was extended because of a previous covenant, a covenant, an oath that David made with Jonathan. We saw that grace, uh, that it was grace that gave and asked nothing in return. We saw it was grace that gave more than what was deserved. We saw that it was grace that fed Mephibosheth at David's table. We saw it was grace that extended favor to Mephibosheth as, as if he was a king's son. It was grace that had no limit. I'm reminded of the song that we sing every now and then. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And David, as we read last week, was overflowing with a heart of kindness and grace. And it reminds you tonight, David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord looks to extend His grace over and over again. That's why we call the dispensation we're in, not only the dispensation of the church, but the dispensation of grace. God's grace is at work. Aren't you glad tonight that in these last several days we've seen a fair measure of God's grace extended to the local community? to our area here, to uh, people that, have, that took some time and effort, and all of us did, in inviting people to come to church, and God's grace working specifically in people and coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Aren't you glad today, as the gospel was preached, here is a, a, young, a man and his, and his girlfriend that came and stood sitting here, and the service, the invitation was given, their hands went up immediately, that they accepted Christ as their Savior. Another lady that's been coming for several months to our church, I stopped her on the side, and, and I said, hey, listen, your, your boyfriend here accepted Jesus as his Savior, and I just started to talk to her, and I said, don't you think it's important to be saved? And she started talking about her religious background and good works, and, and I started talking to her about that, and she started to realize that she wasn't absolutely sure she was saved, and she said, Pastor, I, I think today I need to get saved there. And she was praying with me and asking Christ in her heart to get saved. Right halfway through the prayer, she started weeping and sobbing and crying and realized that Christ was forgiving her of her sins. And I reminded this past week on Monday as I was following up on one of our visitors that came and the visitor sat way in the back where Brother Tick is at tonight and uh, they sat right in the back to this morning but they came last week and I didn't really get a chance to meet them. I was talking with them a little bit on the phone and wanted to get an appointment and this week didn't work out for that but we were, wa- we were talking on the phone for just a little bit and this dear person as they were talking was unloading their heart about a number of problems and difficulties and trials that people have and, and they had it specifically. It was a very, 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 just very tough situation. And uh, and they were talking about the religious background. But I, I asked the question, I said, are you sure you're saved? They said they're not. They weren't sure they were saved. And after about maybe 30, 40 minutes of just explaining the gospel, going over and having repeated to me, I'm thankful that person over the phone said, Pastor, I need to get saved today. And they called upon the Lord there on Monday night and asked Jesus to save them. I'm thankful for this past Sunday that we're sharing with the Chinese department how uh, Brother Kent Kwan had invited his neighbors to come. They're English speaking people. And they came and they were just thankful for their relationship with Kent and Helen. And, and uh, they had a chance to they got here, Denny knew who they were, and Brother Denny got a chance to meet with them and talk with them a little bit there. And Denny just happened, we had slotted on last Sunday that Denny was to give the, the, the lesson and message in the first hour in the Chinese department with translation. And Brother Denny got up and gave a gospel message, and I believe you, you preached on, 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 on Abel, was it not on Abel? He preached on Abel from uh, Genesis chapter 4, and Hebrews 11.4 there or so, or 11.5. 
And as he gave the gospel, he just explained the gospel very carefully. And as he did so, he just gave a simple invitation. And this couple that got invited, they raised their hand. They wanted to get saved. And so Danny looked for them, made sure they tried to get the service. And somehow they got discombobulated with our schedule there as we, people were shaking hands. And instead of say, staying for the English service, they took off and went home. And so we're a little bit bummed out by that. And so I was talking to Brother Denny on Monday. I said, Brother Denny, I think it's important since they know you and they heard you give the gospel and they responded to the invitation. I said, Brother Denny, I, this is a little different than what I normally do. I said, I want you to go there and I want you to go talk to them about the Lord. And I said, I want you to do it Wednesday night. I think it's more important you go there on my behalf on Wednesday night to try to get to them. Brother Denny did so in about 825. We were just ending the service or 830 or so. I'm walking to a meeting with the deacons there. And I get a text message from Brother Denny. Hey, Pastor, praise the Lord. Jerry and Patricia trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I'm telling you, that's a wonderful thing when we see a measure of God's grace extended and people getting saved and the Lord working people's hearts and everyone having a part in that. And I want to tell you tonight, when you have a part in that, we're all co-labors together in the gospel of Jesus Christ here. We're so excited about what God's doing. And maybe you're new to the church. And I just want to tell you today that we believe that in this day and age we're in, God is extending his measure of grace to people. We saw a video tonight from Brother Jerry White, who's doing a great work for God in Tanzania. And boy, you talk about an area of the world where God's grace is being extended to people. It's right there. We're seeing the abounding mercies of God. David was at a place where there, he was abounding in mercies and abounding with kindness. Notice in chapter 19 of 1 Chronicles, David still is in this place where his heart is overflowing with an extension of kindness and mercy. And I want to remind us tonight as a church, our Lord still has a heart of grace extending itself out for this world. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. And I remind you tonight, let's get on the bandwagon with Jesus and try to get his grace to as many people as we can. Amen. And so we look at chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. And the incident had happened in that in that area of the world, the Ammonites, who were not necessarily friendly to the Israelites, the Ammonites had a king by the name of Nahash. Nahash chose to be friendly to David. Nahash was good to David. He sent gifts to David. He was helpful to David. And uh, Nahash had died, and David felt felt uh, remorse in his heart and sorrow in his heart for someone that man who died. And David's uh, statement in verse two was that I will show kindness unto Hanan, that is the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. And David was wanting to extend kindness to this man Hanan. David again is abounding in his mercies and his grace. Now I want you to see a couple of thoughts I want to give you tonight. And it's just tonight about about this matter of God's mercies and kindness and grace and so forth there. First of all, I want you to consider with me as from a Christian standpoint, the unrestrained service, the unrestrained service. Romans chapter 12, verses nine and 10 tell us the following. And let me give you the context of this. Romans 12 talks to us about the fact that we're saved by God's mercies and we are to dedicate our bodies to the Lord. We're to find our usefulness to God. We talked about this morning in the morning service about the church at Colossae. And we talked about how in that church, Paul wrote to them about reestablishing the preeminence of Christ and making sure that, that Jesus had no competitors, that Jesus is number one. Jesus had absolute authority in the lives of people, that in all things he meant have the preeminence. And so when we get to Romans chapter 12, Paul lovingly writes that chapter to speak to us about our purpose and place in the local New Testament church and realizing that, first of all, after you get saved and baptized, the next thing you should do is say, Lord, I'm all yours. Lord, I dedicate my body to you. You you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. You put it all on the altar. Say, Lord, I'm all yours. I want you to use me. And as you do so, 
you're realizing that now God has given you a pathway and direction. Romans 12 teaches us what to do with your life after you've dedicated your life to the Lord. Now tonight, there's a whole lot of people here this evening new to the church. You've, you've been saved, you've been baptized, but you've never dedicated your life to the Lord. Some of you have been in church for a long time, and you're on, you're on board with a lot of things with the church, but you've never dedicated your life to the Lord. I just want to tell you tonight, if you want to be in God's will, if you want to follow God's will, you've got to dedicate your life to the will of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. You cannot demonstrate that you're in God's will if your body is not and your life is not dedicated to the Lord. And so then he tells us, how do you find your meaningfulness? And how do you find your place in Romans 12? Well, he talks about the spiritual gifts. And every one of us has a gift that the Lord has given to us, a gift to be used in his local church. And I want to encourage you tonight, you ought to fill out that spiritual gift questionnaire if you've not done so to ascertain what your gift is so that you can specifically be using that gift in the local church. Well, with that gift, he goes on by describing to us the spirit in which we, the attitude and spirit, we're to exercise those gifts, okay? And so now that's what we're looking at here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. He's telling us believers the kind of spirit that we are to have, the kind of attitude in which we're to dispense our gifts. Listen, if you're grumbling, if you're mumbling, if you're, you don't like what you're at, you're critical of the ministry, you're finding fault in the ministry, you always have something negative to say, something positive, we're not fulfilling what the Lord wants us to do according to Romans chapter 12. So Romans 12, he says this, look at verses 9 and 10. Let love be without dissimulation. Now, the word dissimulation means don't be hypocritical. Don't say, I love you, and act something else. Let your love be without dissimulation. Don't be double-minded. Don't be double-faced. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. In, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. The spirit by which we serve with our spiritual gifts is not serving to edify ourselves. That's the whole reason why Paul wrote First. Corinthians 14, uh, 12, 13, and 14 to, to deal with the church that was exalting its gifts. Well, our goal is not to exalt the gifts we have. The goal God has for us is to take those gifts and build up the body of Christ. Hey, people need to feel the love of God coming out of us and overflowing out of us when we preach the word, when we do deeds of service, when we do deeds of mercy. They need to sense that God's love is flowing out of us. And I'm going to tell you tonight, if we've gotten to the place where we're crusty and we're rusty and we're, we're disgruntled about it and we're critical about it, it it means that we're not in conformity with Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Yeah. In honor, preferring one another with brotherly kindness. Then 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. Besides this, giving all diligence. It means you've got to work at it. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. The temperance, patience, the patience, godliness. Notice in the godly, godliness, brotherly kindness. Uh, sometimes when I make hospital visits, when I'm by myself, if, 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 if the person's on a hospital that has six or less floors, I tend to take to walk the stairs or run the stairs up versus taking the elevator. I like just climbing the steps. I try to get a few more steps in there, try to do things. I like staying busy. I'm the kind of person, like when I park in a parking lot, I like to park far away and I'll walk over to some. I just want to get just a little bit of distance there. And, and, just, and by the way, I don't get my car dinked by doing that. Amen. You know, that's just a good thing right there. Just a thought for you there. Amen. You know? and, uh, but, you know, we're, we're looking at here Second Peter chapter 1. Peter's telling us about the steps we have to climb to spiritual maturity. And these steps we climb, you know, you look at it right here. He talks about giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, you look at that tonight and ask yourself, well, where am I at on the stair climbing business? 
And he tells us that to godliness, we have brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. Hey, listen, we have not attained and none of us will attain until we get to the place where we can love like God loves. And so we look at Peter here and we look at Paul here and we look at David here. David said, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Naaz. David was at a place, he's overflowing with kindness and love. He just wants to help people. He wants to do things for people. Let me encourage you tonight as we get into the Thanksgiving season. Let us be a church that wants to help one another. Let us be a church that wants to help people. Let us be a church where we go out of our way to extend brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary, single woman missionary that was in India, spent all her life there, never went back home on furlough, said this. If the ultimate, the hardest cannot be asked of me, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. We see the abounding mercies. But notice here with this un- unrestricted reign service, but notice we see the unrestricted salvation. David's heart is Overflowing with kindness to serve somebody else. But notice it speaks about unrestricted salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, would you notice these verses tonight, verse 7 to 9? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. How many of you are glad tonight God is kind to you and me? Amen. He's kind in his mercies. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 speaks about the abounding mercies of God and that he might show the kindness of God towards us through Christ Jesus. And he goes on by saying in verse 8 how this kindness is exhibited. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Hey, listen, tonight if you're here and do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're not 100% sure you're saved. Those verses we just read is God's invitation to you to accept Jesus Christ tonight and get saved. The grace of God comes to you. You don't have to go to the grace of God because it comes to you. And God's grace offers you eternal life. It is the gift from God. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's not something you have to do. It's something that's already done. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He shed his precious blood for us. That was the payment price on demand for our sins. He took care of all that. And he offers you this wonderful grace. And he says that you might receive it and be saved today. And I'm going to tell you tonight, if you know you're not saved, you know you're not sure you're going to heaven, listen, our sins will condemn us and send us to hell. What a terrible thing to spend all of eternity in hell because we did not respond to the Lord and accept His grace in our lives. We see here this unrestricted unrestricted salvation. Salvation is available to all. Here's David's heart. David's saying, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash. He says, I'm overflowing with wanting to extend grace and kindness. I want to extend my grace to this man. I want to extend my grace to an unbeliever. I want to extend my grace to someone who helped me, whose father helped me. We see a heart of flowing overflowing with the abounding mercies. Notice number two now as we work our way through the scriptures tonight. Please don't miss this. We see the abounding mercies, but you notice tonight the appalling mistreatment. I don't know about you, but when you read verses three and four, it, you blush a little bit when you read that. Notice in verse 2, David has some kingdom representatives. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. The servants of David came into the land of the children of Ammon to Hanan to comfort him. The king has his messengers he sends. These were venerable men. They were older men. They were dignified men. They were men that were dressed in the king's garments. 
If you represent the king, your attire demonstrated who you wore. That's why in so many, we go so many, we dress, we don't dress down, we dress up. We look respectable, we look decent when we go. Listen, guys, don't come in your blue jeans and t-shirt, come respectable. We're representing the king of kings. Ladies, you come and dress modestly when you come. We're coming there to represent the king. When the king has his representatives that he's sending out there to go to this man to extend grace and kindness to him. These representatives are messengers of peace or messengers of grace. And I remind you tonight, just by way of application, you and I are the king's representatives. We are his messengers of his grace and kindness. We're couriers of his grace. And so David sent these men to go to to Hanan to bring him a message of peace and to give comfort to him. We find that twice in verse 2. They come to bring comfort to this man, to encourage him in the Lord and encourage him in where he's at there and to let him know his dad was a good man. I mean, David had good intentions with all that. But these king's representatives, notice they were met with a contemptuous rudeness. These advisors come and Hanan is now new to the throne. He's an inexperienced neophyte. He doesn't have any experience as a king. And he has his advisors around him who really don't think highly of David. And they're very suspicious. Quite honestly, they had nothing good to think about David. In spite of the fact, David was good to Nahash. And they go over to Hanan and they said, Hanan, listen, do you think David really has good intentions here? Do you really think David really is extending his grace to you? Do you really think that he has good intentions? I'll tell you what we think. We think that he sent these men here to spy out the land. He came here to check us out because he has something up his sleeve he's going to do. They, 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 just, they didn't look at David's track record. They didn't consider publicly and privately all that he did for Naash and the Ammonites. They just saw something very suspicious there. And in verse 3 they said, do you really think he's come to honor your father? Do you really think he's come? Don't you realize he's come to search it out and to overthrow and spout the land? And instead of doing his own research discovering for himself, Hanan said, okay, I get the message there. And Hanan does something very despicable, reprehensible to these servants. Now, remember, these are venerable men. These are aged men. These are older men. These are men that probably had gray hair. Men that are much older. And they were, they were messengers of the king. And they were dressed as the king's representatives. And to touch him and do any dishonor to him would mean even death to you there. And they took these messengers of David. And the first thing they did, and all men during those days had beards. That should encourage those who had beards tonight. Amen. They all had beards there and represented their maturity and represented their, 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 who they wore and so forth there. But to shave a man's beard publicly, to shave a man's beard like that was, was equivalent to flogging a man in public. That's pretty bad. Not only did they shave these men's beards, you have to imagine as they did so, they probably cut some of those men along the way because they didn't have the modern methods we have today. They didn't have a Norelco shaver, if you know what I mean tonight, amen? They shaved those men, probably cut those men. They shaved their beards and humiliated them. And then to make matters worse, they took, they took knives, they took their swords, and they cut off their garments from the hip down. Therefore, leaving these men exposed publicly. And they had to walk around like that. They didn't bring a change of clothes. They just wore those clothes. And those men were embarrassed. They were shamed. They were humiliated. They were treated with contemptuous rudeness there. Kindness is met with contempt. Sympathy is met with spitefulness. Courtesy is met with cruelty. Refreshment is met with rudeness. Grace is met with grossness. Hey, that's what happens. You know, you try to live for God and serve the Lord and try to do people right. Along the way, there's somebody that just doesn't think your motive's right. I said this morning, the morning service, we live in an angry society. We live in a mean society. We're outright crude and mean and disrespectful. 
They're mean to those who are older than them. They're mean to children. They're mean to women. They're mean to pastors. They're mean to the congregation. They're mean to different people. That's how people, some people react to the gospel message. They're very spiteful of the gospel message. Very spiteful of authority. They have zero respect for the gospel and God's grace abounding. We see contemptuous rudeness. These men did not want to receive comfort. They did not want to receive message, the message from God. They did not want to receive the message from David. They were contemptuously treated with rudeness. They were treated with absolute shame and humility. They said, who cares about your grace? Get out of our sight. We're going to tell you what we think about your grace. We're going to shave your beards. We're going to cut your garments off. We're going to leave you walking around publicly naked and exposed before everybody else. Wow. Some of you have gone so winning. You understand what I'm going to say tonight. Good intentions in your heart. You knock on somebody's door and they treat you with absolute rudeness. They tell you, take your track and get that track off my door. They'll call the church every now and then and say, well, your people were here and they did something there. And, of course, we'll call them and apologize to them for that. But remind you, there have been many times where this sometimes you say something, you do something, and you're mis- mis- misunderstood by that. And then right at the door, as you're right shaking as someone comes up to you, you're trying to extend the grace of God. Somebody comes right up to you and they just, just let you have it. You're kind of speechless. You don't know what to do. You feel like as they go on their tirade and tell you, tell you everything you did wrong, everything you said wrong, everything that goes wrong, you feel like, wow, what happened to God's grace? And these men in verse 4, if you look at that, are humiliated. They're shamed. They're embarrassed. But notice in verse 5, David comes along and notice a compassionate restoration. This is so good. I, have a lot, I don't have a lot of time on this, but let me just show you what happened. What about those representatives? Well, somebody may have been one of them. We're not really sure if you read verse 5. One of them or somebody went back to David and told David how they were mistreated. The Bible says David, certain, then there went certain and told David how the men were served. And immediately notice the first thing happens, David sent to meet them. Now I want to encourage you tonight. Listen to me this evening. Look up here. You're a victim of abuse. You've been a victim of humiliation and shame and someone's done you wrong i want to tell you tonight the first one's going to meet you is god first one's going to meet you the lord david sent to meet them you might feel like quitting because i tell you these men right there they're in that moment's time they're thinking in mind i think i'm going to quit the king's service this is how we can get treated i don't want to serve the king I think those men, as they were there serving, serving the king, they're probably thinking, you know what? This is not worth it. We've been humiliated. How can we show our faces in public again? Look at what he's done to us. Look at, look at what Hanan has done to us. This is so terrible. By the way, the name Hanan is where we get the word Hannah, the name Hannah from, which is where we get the word gracious from. He was anything but gracious. And David sends to meet them and thank God tonight if you've been a victim of abuse and you've been hurt and you've been humiliated, you've been shamed. I want to give you some good news tonight. We've got a God in heaven who meets you right where you're at right now. He says to meet them, he gives them a word of encouragement. He says to them as they're there and the king said, tarry at Jericho till your beards be grown and then return. You know what he's telling them there? And I've got a devotion this week that's going to come out of the God morning devotion you want to read. But he says, oh, here's what you need to do. He says, I realize you can't come back the way you look right now because your beards have been shaven. You've been humiliated. And as I said earlier, something like that was equivalent to flogging a person in public. And he says, here's what you do. The nearest city for you to go to, go to Jericho. And Jericho, as you know, is always a picture of faith in the Bible. 
Jericho's a picture where God did some great things. And he said, I know you've been hurt. And I know you feel like you've been squashed in your faith there. But he says, Terry of Jericho, until your beards be grown. You know what he's telling us there? It'll grow back again. You know what he's telling us there? You can recover. You know what he's telling us there? Take some time and let the Lord work in your heart. And Terry there, Jericho, and start growing in the faith. Don't let this tragedy be. Don't let this situation be a tragedy. Let this situation turn into a triumphant situation where God works in your life. And when he was telling them there, as you're staying there over at Jericho, he's saying, Tearing a Jericho is a time of refuge. Hey, the Lord is a refuge for us in times of trouble. Tearing a Jericho is a time of rebuilding. Tearing a Jericho is a time of restoration. You're rebuilding your faith. He says, stay there till your beards be grown. Just stay there and grow that circular. Let me tell you tonight, whatever situation you've gone through that's humiliated you and brought you down and made you feel insecure and inferior about your ways, why don't you just stare, Terry a Jericho, like he said, and let your beard be grown. Use that as a growing opportunity for the Lord to work your life. Why? And by the way, this came from the commandment of the king. The king knew what was best for those people that period of time. And what was best from that period of time is stay over the city there. Get your heart right. Grow in the Lord. Take some time off. But realize as soon as you start growing again, get back and serve the Lord. You see the appalling mistreatment. Notice in verses 6 to 17. Now we get to the crux of our message tonight. But you notice an apocalyptic matchup. The word apocalypse or apocalyptic has the idea of a fate that is about to happen. Something fateful. Sometimes people refer to the book of Revelation as the apocalypse. It is not the apocalypse, the revelation of the Apostle John. But they call it the apocalypse sometimes, refer to the apocalypse because it's talking about something fateful, something that will happen. By the way, if you want to know how the future is going to unfold, read the book of Revelations. Amen? Notice in verse 6, And when the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan's actions of despising David's kindness forces a showdown. And I want you to see some things as we get into this, because this gets into the crux of a very important spiritual concept. Number one, what you notice in verse six, we see a sickening character. When the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David. Now, the word odious is used two different times in the Old Testament. Here, in Proverbs 30. In Proverbs 30, it talks about an odious woman. It's talking about a very hateful, scornful individual. Here, the word odious is used in the terms of of, of, of somebody who's, who, 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 it, it talks about being a stench, a very bad smell. Because as we match that up with 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 10 verse 6 says, And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David. Hey listen, Hanan and the Ammonites knew themselves that what they did was despicable. They knew what they did was reprehensible. The Bible even says so strongly in language that they knew that they were odious to David. They knew 
that this would force a showdown. They knew that what they did was a stench in the nostrils of God. Sin is a stench in the nostrils of God. Sin stinks to the Lord. The Ammonites were so rude and cruel, they knew that they stank. Read about over in Genesis there about how Simeon and Levi, the two sons of Jacob, as they were down there at Shechem, how they did did some misdeeds to all the men of Shechem, and they killed all those men by the sword. And Jacob's response to that is he considered what his two sons had done. He said this to his two sons. You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You know what he's saying there? What you did there made a bad testimony of the Christian faith before the Canaanites and Perizzites. Let me tell you tonight, the worst thing we could do to our society, the worst thing we could do to our co-workers, the worst thing we could do to our employees, the worst thing we could do to our neighbors is have a very, very bad testimony. A bad testimony is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's a stench in the, mind, in the minds and the hearts of the unsaved. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 10.1 says. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. In other words there... He's talking about someone having some kind of a perfume, or not perfume, but some kind of a medicine that has that has a, a very strong smell. They call it a po- smell, apothecary. But flies happen to land in it, and flies die in it, and they are allowed to rot. They're not extracted out of there until the bodies of the flies are rotting inside it. Instead of a good aroma coming out of this 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 medicine, a very bad stench comes out. And he's equating that to people who are known for their wisdom, or should be known for their wisdom and their discernment, and instead they do something very foolish, a little folly that destroys their entire reputation. Let me tell you something today. Those cute jokes that you think are out there, they're not cute because they could destroy your testimony. Those little cute words that you think are cute, they're not cute. They'll destroy your testimony. Dead flies in the ointment of the apothecary does send forth a stinking savor. And so notice here, the children of the Ammon, they saw that they stank before David. It's a very strong description of how terrible the rejection of David's grace or kindness was. They knew they stank. David's grace was rejected. We see the sickening character. Now would you notice the spiritual concept? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. First Chronicles 19, Second Samuel 10 illustrates for us very boldly, very powerfully, a spiritual concept that's found here in Hebrews chapter 10. And notice if you go with me here in Hebrews 10, I want you to read verses 26 to 29 with me tonight. I don't have time to develop all of this this evening. You might want to go back to the archives. When I preached you the book of Hebrews several years ago, I covered some of this. I'll give you a small amount of that tonight. But I want to see how the power, the, the power of the scriptures is speaking to us about this matter of despising God's grace. And what does that mean when you're as a believer, you despise the grace of God? How does God look upon that? How does God portray that? And I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 29, what the Bible says here. And I believe the writers, the apostle Paul, he says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after that, we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses law without mercy, uh, uh, died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose ye uh, shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot and underline that phrase trodden underfoot the son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite into the spirit of grace. Now I want to underline some things here because we need to break this up for a few minutes so you can understand where I'm going tonight. Number one underline that phrase trodden underfoot the son of God. 
Then isolate from that and, and underline un, uh, after that, count it the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. And then underline after that, has done despite unto the spirit of grace. Now, what's he talking about here? We're talking about David here in First Chronicles 19, where David had a heart overflowing with grace. He wanted to show kindness to Hanan, the son of Naash, because Naash had died. David is in this mood of where he's extending his grace beyond just Jonathan's family. He's extending his grace beyond all that, just like God's grace extends to all the world. And here we find now in Hebrews chapter 10, we see a powerful scriptural principle here about what happens. What does it mean to despise the grace of God? And what does it mean? What happens when we despise the grace of God? Now, we read this, there's a lot of confusion that comes to people's mind there. So number one, let me give you some background to this. Number one, the book of Hebrews, you have to write this down or otherwise you get confused or you're going to wind up with the wrong doctrine. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians. Number two, those Christians have been unduly influenced by Judaizers, false Jewish teachers that were telling them Jesus Christ was not enough for their salvation. And so as a result of that, they said, you need to add to Jesus. That's why when you went to the book of Hebrews, it's very exciting reading because he says Jesus is better than this. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. By the way, he's not just better. He's the best. Amen. But these Judaizers influence these weak, immature Christians and telling them all these things there. And, you know, as a new Christian, as a believer that's trying to learn the word of God, who's not who doesn't want to learn more and who doesn't want to appreciate more. But I told you this this morning. We've got to watch this very carefully. Heritage Baptist Church and a growing church, expanding church. A lot of people come in. Unfortunately, the Bible says grievous wolves also come in. We had some here this morning. I had to keep my eye on them. Grievous wolves come into a church. And grievous wolves have a different agenda because as you read Acts chapter 20, their main intent is to draw disciples unto themselves. That's why I'm going to tell you right now, before you go over to somebody's house for lunch or something of that nature, you better check with your pastor before you go over. So, well, are you managing us? No, I'm trying to keep you from being misled. You don't know what I know. And I don't have to tell you enough. I could just all you have to know is just trust the pastor on this matter and you'll do okay. He said, well, Paul Chapel has people over there. Yeah, he has people over his house, but he also has his deacons and assistant pastors there. And he may have 100 people at his house, but he's got a lot of people watch what's going on there, too. And so there's a lack of understanding to these Hebrew believers about the fact that Jesus was the perfect son of God who died for every sinner and that his shed blood died, was paid once and for all for all sins. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, well, Jesus has to die over and over again. We need to have the sacrifice over and over again, because remember, our Jewish our Jewish ceremony was that we have to have a sacrifice every year. And we the high priest goes in behind the Holy of Holies and he pours the water. He said, this is part of our life. This is part of religion. This is part of our tradition. Listen, we have, when we exalt tradition over the truth, we're in trouble. He says, you don't have to do that. Jesus died once and for all for sinners. Look at verse 10. By the which we were sanctified by the offering, the body of Jesus Christ. Notice the next phrase, once and for all, praise God. You don't need a high priest who has to offer sin for himself or other people to keep going back into that holy of holies to keep offering a sin, a sacrifice. No, listen, that was over when Jesus died on the a guy on the cross. Listen, the veil was rent in two and ripped and ripped in two. And listen, what that meant was you don't you have freedom to Jesus Christ. You don't have to do this over and over again. Jesus died once and for all for sinners. He is not. Re- you don't have to repeat the death of Christ in some ceremony. You don't have to repeat the shed blood of Christ over and over again. You can't because he died once and for all for all sinners. By the way, the blood of Jesus Christ, you said, where is this perpetual blood that's in heaven right now? You say, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 12. 
The blood of Christ speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. And so these believers are struggling. They've had an outpouring of God's grace in their life. But notice what happens here. These believers are not where they need to be in their Christian life. Now watch, imagine me just for sake of illustration. Imagine to be close to God as being right here on, right here where I'm standing right now. But being not, but not being close to God means that you're taking several steps backwards. And if you read through the book of Hebrews, watch this now, you need to write this down if you're not familiar with it. The book of Hebrews tells us, as we begin in chapter 2, that there are, there are five different stages of spiritual decline that are identified in the book of Hebrews. These stages of spiritual decline are talking about what can happen to every single person, beginning with the pastor and touching every member of the congregation. We can all be victims of, a, of, a, of some progressive spiritual decline in our life. In chapter 2, the spiritual decline begins with drifting. Drifting is when we become careless and negligent about the handling of the word of God. That's why when you read Hebrews 2.3, the context in Hebrews 2.3 is not to unbelievers, it's to believers. He says, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The context here is not that you're going to lose your salvation. He's talking about escaping the judgment of God as we're going to see here or the chasing hand of God there. And so the first stage of spiritual decline is when we start to drift, we become intermittent. We come and go. We're sporadic on our Bible reading. We're not as committed as we used to be. We're not tithing like we should be. We're not living for Christ. And we've got some secret sin, but we just cover it up because nobody, nobody we think will ever find out about it. And we're here one Sunday, gone three. We're here one Sunday, gone three. We're not in church. We're not in our Bible. We haven't prayed for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days. None of being hard on people. I'm just telling you, that's the reality of the Christian life. And that resonates with you. You know what I'm talking about then tonight. My heart goes out for you because I've been there too. He says, Well, you're a pastor. Listen, pastors struggle more in, about their prayer life than you know about the members of the congregation. For me to pray through all the congregation in one sitting would take three hours. And I've done that. And I've still missed people. And I don't want to mislead you. Sometimes Brother Danny gets up and I shudder a little bit when he says, a pastor study long. I'll be honest with you. I like to read more Bible, but I don't read as much Bible as I like to read. That doesn't mean I'm not in the word. I'm a place in life. Sometimes I'll cater pastors like this and God just works in my heart over one word. I'm not going to rush God. I want God to work on me. But there's drifting and then notice stage two. Is doubting. That's chapter 3 of Hebrews. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about what pastor said. I, you know, I have a different opinion. Well, I understand what he's preaching about faith, but those days are over. I understand what he's saying about prayer, but I, I wonder if he's just kind of concocting something that's not in the scriptures. And I don't know if that really works. I haven't seen that work for me. The Bible tells us today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And so we go from drifting to doubting. We don't have faith in the building program or the vision for the expansion of the church. We don't have faith in supporting missionaries like a Jerry Wyatt. And so we don't participate in the, in the work of God there. And we don't have faith in the fact that God can save souls. Hey, let me tell you something tonight. And I, I don't mean to pat him on the back, but one of our men who's new to the church here tonight, and he's here tonight. Is a soul winning training. With one of our experienced men out soul winning yesterday, they brought the couple that came to church and got saved today in the morning service. 
He hasn't knocked enough doors to know all the different nuances and things like that. He doesn't care about that. He just knows God said that we need to reach the world and I need to go get the gospel somebody. God bless that faith tonight. There's drifting, there's doubting. Stage three, as we get to chapter five and six, stage three is dullness or slothfulness. As we read Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6, we realize this dullness and slothfulness affects our very reading of the word of God. Where Paul contrasts the milk of the word and the meat of the word. He uses the example of milk being that, you know, when you're a new believer, you don't understand all the complex things of the word of God. And I try to be sensitive to that when I preach on Sunday nights because we, we have some believers and we have some dear people. And I appreciate their frankness in letting me know this. But a few weeks ago, I was preaching the word of God and, and uh, a, a couple of our members came up and said, Pastor, we didn't understand a thing what that pastor is talking about. And, and I tell you, honestly, I felt like this right at that moment. I felt, oh, man, I did a terrible job. I say, can I give you the notes, try to help you work through it? And a lot of it is just maybe this terminology, learning it. Following week, I made sure I worked on it, worked on it, worked on the message. And they said, Pastor, it really helped us tonight. We got it tonight. But the milk of the word is when you cannot understand the, the deeper things of God. You know, babies can't eat steak. Babies have to start off with milk. Babies go from milk, they go to small amounts of solid food, and the solid food goes from rice and from cereal to where they can eat something a little bit more, and the baby food comes with a little more substance to where they can get real food they can chew. But listen, nobody jumps from milk to meat overnight. And these believers he's talking about there, they got into the place they'd become slothful or dull about the word of God and they were not growing. And here's what, here's what the apostle Paul said. You've come to the place, you cannot discern between good and wrong, bad and evil and good and, good and right because you, you have not progressed from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. And by the way, let me tell you this. When you stay long term out of the word of God, you're not in God's word, you're not growing, you're not in church like you should be. Here's what happens. What, what happens is that you might be have gotten right here, but now you're starting to regress a little bit. You start to drift and you start to get, you start to get doubtful and now you start to get to the place where you start becoming becoming uh, uh, you know, dull about the word of God. And all of a sudden, instead of understanding the meat of the word, you're back to square one. You can only understand the milk of the word of God. But then we get to stage four. And stage four is a very terrifying term because stage four, normally we think of stage four, we think about Cancer. Hebrews 10, 28 speaks us tonight. 10, 20 or 10, 29 speaks us tonight. 10, 29. A fourth stage of spiritual decline. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. I said this passage was written to Christians. The word despise means something or someone is at the place where, where to despise someone or something is you're at the place where, where that person or that object is undervalued. They're hated or abhorred. They're spurned and rejected. Let me repeat that again. The word despise means that something or someone you look at or consider, you undervalue that person, you abhor that person, you spurn them or you reject them. Notice with me chapter 10 of 20, 1029 of, of Hebrews 1029. He says, and he's talking about doing despite into the spirit of grace. The word despite that's used here is only used one time in the New Testament. 
And the word despite the use here is not the same word that's speaking about those who despise Moses' law. Those who, were, those who despise Moses' law uses the definition I just mentioned, where they abhorred, they rejected, they refused everything that Moses said. And that's why under, the, under two or three witnesses, they died under Moses' law, because that was how God chastened them. Now notice here in 1029, the word despite is only used one time. And the word despise, you want to write this down, literally means this, to insult. It means to treat contumely. It means to treat with rudeness. It means to treat with arrogance and insolence and reproach. Notice if we change the word, and I'm not rewriting the Bible, but I want you to understand the power of what this is saying. He's saying, of how much sure punishment should ye, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who is trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done an insult, a, he's basically reproved, he's treated with rudeness, he treats with arrogance and insolence, or he approaches the very Spirit of God grace what he's saying there exactly what Hanan and the Ammonites did to David's servants and shaving their beards and cutting their garments off from the hips down exposing publicly it's publicly humiliating them and doing insult to those men and what the Bible is telling us here is that when we despise God's grace <coughs> working in our lives, and we say no, and we go from drifting to doubtfulness, to dullness, to now this place of despising. He says we are doing despising the, 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 the spirit of grace. We're at this place where we're treating the spirit of grace with rudeness here. What's he mean by that? Well, wait a minute, pastor. Who, who are we talking about here? Well, number one, notice in chapter 10 here, sometimes this passage is, is interpreted as saying, well, really, you know what he's talking about there? He's saying Christians can lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about there. Because as you read the context, you want to notice very carefully. He uses terms like brethren. He uses terms like let us. He uses the plural we. The entire context is referring to Christians. It's talking about people that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, as Savior and are saved. Notice in verse 29, he says, and they, they, they have, uh, they, they, the, 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 he's talking about the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. He's not talking about people that are not saved. He's talking about people that are already saved. He's talking about people that are saved and settled in Jesus Christ. Their home is in heaven. They're sons of God. But these are people that have despised God's grace. They're doing insult to the grace of God. They're refusing the spirit of God as he works over and over God. It is not saying you can lose your salvation. It's not saying you can be saved over and over again. It's not saying like Kenneth Weiss and his word said he's in the New Testament. It's not referring to spiritual condition that only existed in the first century. It's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about believers here who God's grace has been extended to them, but they've insulted the grace of God. He said, no more, Holy Spirit, no more, God. I don't want you talking to me. Don't tell me what to do. And you shun the grace of God and you close your eyes as the invitation is given. And you say, God, I don't need you anymore. I don't want to hear it. And I've heard this over and over again. And your heart becomes hardened because you become mature in Jesus Christ. Listen, none of us have attained, according to the Apostle Paul. You notice here as we read chapter 10, you notice in verses 10 to 18, there are people that are forgiven. 
Notice verse 19, there are people that are given a new freedom. In verse 19, he says, this is so powerful. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter to the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, when Christ died for every sinner, no longer was the veil inhibiting believers from going exactly to God. Listen, the veil was broken now by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have freedom and access to God. No wonder it's a wonderful thing when we pray to God, we can plead the blood of Jesus because it gives us freedom and access to God. Verse 20, there are people with a blessed future. Look at verse 20, by a new and living way. Verses 21 to 25, they're encouraged into fellowship. Then verses 26 to 29, there are people that are in failure. Despising the grace of the Lord is what he calls in verse 26. You're sinning willfully. You know what's right, but you're not doing it. You know the Spirit is beckoning, but you're saying no. It's willful rejection of the commandments and calling of God. You will do what you want to do. The Holy Spirit has no say in your life. It is trotting underfoot the Son of God. Notice again in verse 29. Trotting underfoot the Son of God means literally this. It means to treat Jesus with rudeness and insult. To trot something underfoot was a very terrible, degrading, defaming, insulting treatment of someone else. County the blood of the covenant, an unholy thing. In other words, they consider the blood of Jesus Christ as common as pig's blood. Wow. They profane the blood of Christ. How can you come to prayer and praying with a carnal, dirty, sinful heart, knowing that we can enter into the holiest of places by the blood of Jesus Christ? It is not a profane thing. It is a holy thing. For you're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's a lamb without blemish, without spot. It's doing despite unto the spirit of grace. Despising the spirit of grace is turning our back on the Holy Spirit. It's rudely ignoring the voice of God. It's insulting by saying your heart and under your lips, I wish you'd go away. I wish you'd not keep telling me what to do, Holy Spirit. Or please go away and you just hold your breath and hold your eyes and wait till the last stanza of, how, uh, of the invitation and have thine own way is done. And we say then the last invitation is given, the invitation verse is given, and we get into immediately into the announcement and things of that nature. Within 30 second time, we've shut off the Holy Spirit of God like we shut off the water valve and we walk out and our conscience is not bothered. That's doing despite into the grace of God. It's a spiritual concept. We go back, keep your finger there. Now we go back to First Chronicles 19 and we see a significant clash. He said in verse 29 of Hebrews 10 of how much sore punishment. Hanan and the Ammonites forced a showdown with David. Despisers grace. They made themselves odious to David. Hain and the children of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire themselves chariots and horsemen out of Mesopotamia and Syria, Maka, and out of Zoba. Listen, they were, they knew they were shameful. What they did, guess what they did? They went and hired people just like, let me tell you something tonight. You can always find people that side with your disgruntled attitude. You can always find people to side with you in something there. That's why we're told in the Bible, never follow a multitude to do evil. They knew David would confront them. 
That's what Hebrews 10 is telling us, what we just read here. God said this, I've, I've called you and I've called you and I've called you and I've called you and I've called you. And he said, listen, I've expended my grace to you, expended my grace to you, expended my grace to you. But here's what you're doing. You rejected me and he says, you're willfully rejecting me. So therefore, he says, you know what? Uh, judgment has to come. I have to send chasing to you. And he reads later on, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our, he says, our God is a, he's like a burning fire there. And listen, they force the confrontation. Listen, God comes to us with grace. But when we insult God and spit in his face, we trot underfoot the, the son of God and we do despite it to the spirit of grace. Listen, we are we are pushing the plate. We're pushing the paper for a spiritual confrontation. So David takes it to him. David says, Joab and Abishai and those men out there. And listen, they know they're outnumbered. So they're still trying to fight God. They're still trying to fight David. So listen, what he does, he sends a thousand talents of, of silver out there to hire all these mercenaries. He says, you come and help me. He says, yeah, we'll help you. We'll be mercenaries for hire. We'll do it for money there. And says, listen, now they're approaching the city of the Ammonites. And as they do so, the Ammonites are assembled there. And then behind them are all these Syrians, this 30,000 chariots, a multitude number of men, all these men there and all these chariots there. And Joab and Abishai look around them and and they said, listen, be, listen, be, be courageous. He says, Abishai, I'm going to take it to the Ammonites. And he said, I'm going to take it to the Syrians. And he said, if I need help, you come help me. And you take it to the Ammonites. You need help, I'll help you. Listen, they thought they could outnumber God. Listen, nobody can outnumber God. Don't fight with God. And you read this passage of scriptures, you did with me. There were no casualties inside of Israel. But there were multiple casualties to the Syrians and the Ammonites. Hebrews 10, 26 says, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. He had to correct their thinking. Jesus is not going to come to earth and die for your sins again. There's not going to be another sacrifice being made. You've done despite it to the spirit of grace, sir. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour those adversaries. David took the battle to them. Despising God's grace is really rejecting various levels of authority in our lives. The older I get, the more I'm cognizant of being under spiritual authority in my life. Rejecting parental authority. Rejecting scriptural authority. Rejecting church authority. Having a spat with your spouse, your parents, and not willing to make it right. Rejecting the call of God to be a preacher. A man came to me the other day. A year a young man. Pastor. God's been working in my heart. I think God wants to be a preacher. I said, young man. You better stay close to God. You believe God's calling you. You better stay on it. You better stay with me. You better stay with me. Don't get your eye off the Lord. Rejecting pastoral authority. You know, and I understand, we, we live in a day, everybody does his own thing. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Who you tell me what to do? You're nobody. I remind you tonight, congregation, rebuke not an elder. You treat the older women in the church as your own mother. You treat the women in the church as your own sisters. You teach the men of the church as your own brethren. Listen, we, go, we get a little bit too past all that. We get a little bit of this, this nonsense. We, we have a bad attitude about things. And that's how people get their relationships all messed up on different things. I'm just saying tonight, you, you, you look at this here tonight, and, and Hanan, Hanan was very insulting, disrespectful to David. We see significant clash. And notice, if you would, a substantial conquest. 
Verse 18, it says in First Chronicles 19, the Syrians fled before Israel and David flew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots and 40,000 footmen and killed Shophak, the captain of the host. Verse 19, and when the servants of Hadarezer saw that they were put to the worst, that's the second time it said that. That means they were embarrassed themselves. When they saw they were put to the worst, they were worse than when they started off before Israel. They made peace with David. Hey, you know what happens here? The night I was asking you, group of folks who were discipling, I said, hey, what is the will of God for your life? And he gave me great answers. But he said, what's the will of God mean to you? Then I asked this question. I said, are you scared about the will of God? And if I went around the room, and I'm not going to do that tonight, but if I went in the room, I think probably 50% or more of the people in the room here tonight would say, yeah, I'm a little bit apprehensive about the will of God. You're afraid of where God's going to call you. Afraid of what God's going to do. You feel, feel like God's going to put you in a, you know, you compare economic things and you, you, you've got this whole twisted way of thinking. And you, by the way, I've been there. And one of the new believers in there, they said, Pastor, my biggest fear about the will of God is God will punish me. Man, can I tell you something tonight? This judgment, this punishment that Paul's talking about in Hebrews 10. He takes it another step further. Help us understand in Hebrews chapter 12. It's the chastening hand of the Lord. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He's repeating there in Hebrews 12 what Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 3. When God has to send something as a trial in our life or difficulty in life as a form of chastening, he doesn't do it to punish us so much as to, to get us corrected. He helps us see we've erred. He helps us to see... We've despised the grace of God. And you notice here, as we close this chapter off, we see the conquest that David did. David overcame them in a masterful way. David proved the shadow of doubt because he didn't have any casualties. That he didn't take very lightly the insult and the despising that these Ammonites did to his servants who represented him. And I remind you tonight, brethren, as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts, part of first love in a Christian life is being sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. Obey every spiritual impulse of God. Not my way, but thy way. Yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, God. Yes, Lord, thank you for speaking to me. How much short punishment shall he be thought worthy who's trodden underfoot the Son of God He talks about the blood of Christ, who treats the blood of Jesus Christ as an unholy thing. He talks about doing despite to the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as we close tonight, I want you to go back to Hebrews 10. And I want you to see a word that God gives us as we close tonight. And I want you to see an advantageous message. An advantageous medicine. What do you do? Okay, Lord, the Lord's spoken to us tonight. 
There's been a despiser. There's been an insult to God. What do you do in the situation? Because, you know, Paul's writing this. I'm not talking about a few believers. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of believers at that time in the first century that were grossly, adversely affected by the spirit, this wave that had affected them. And they were basically saying no to God. And some of the signs we saw that as we read the book of Hebrews, some of them had dropped out of church. We can't address in chapter 10. Some stopped assembling with other people. Some of them lost their, 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 their effectiveness in stimulating one another in the, in the things of God. They were not fellowshipping. They were not in the word of God. They mean, all these things were happening in their life. And, they, and they're feeling like, you know, they're feeling like this. Okay, you told us what we've done wrong. And you told us that God is chasing. Now we understand why we're being chasing. But what do we do about all this? Thing? And Paul emphasized with that. Paul empathized with the fact that they felt really low and they felt really beaten up. And they felt like they needed love. But let me remind you tonight, God's grace does not turn us away. God's grace still extends us in spite of the fact we may despise his grace his grace still extends us and so notice as we close tonight I want to just give you this very simple thought here tonight notice as we close verses 32 to 38 very quickly notice the advantageous message we can reverse this situation we can get back in track we can get on a stage four condition we can reverse stage four stage three stage two and stage one The first thing he tells us, notice in verses 32 to 34, let me read that to you so you understand where I'm going. He says, but called to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, partly while you made, you were made a scazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used, for you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joy for the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. You know what he's saying there? Number one, be stirred. Be stirred about your faith when you first got saved. Be stirred about your first love in Jesus Christ called to remembrance the former days. Hey, do you remember how sweet it was when you got Jesus in your heart? Do you remember how sweet it was when you made those decisions? Do you remember how sweet it was when you made that first donation? Do you remember how sweet it was when you rocked on that first door and gave the gospel for the very first time? He says, call to remembrance those sacrifices you made. He says, call to remembrance that you, that you took the afflictions and mom and dad were angry with you and you took and you suffered for Jesus' sake. And he says, remember those days when you had compassion for people like Paul and Bob and took joy, joyfully the spoiling of goods. Hey, call to remembrance those days. Be stirred about the fact of the first love you need back in Jesus Christ. Listen, the, re- the way to get back out of donuts and the way to get out of despitefulness and get stirred in your heart about what Jesus Christ did for you when you got saved. And he says in verses 35 to 37, we need to be steadfast. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Which is great recompense of reward. If you need a patience that after you notice that you've done the what? The will of God. You might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Verse 35, 37, he's telling us, be steadfast. Reminds us, Jesus is coming soon. You're going to hear that a lot from, a lot from the pulpit. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus could come today, he could come tomorrow, but he's coming soon. You see, I've need a patience. The journey of faith is a difficult one. The journey of faith is a hard one. But he says, be stirred and be steadfast. Listen, maybe you're wavering right now. You're feeling like you're going to drop out. Maybe you feel like you're going to go away. You're discouraged. You're disgruntled, whatever it may be. Hey, get that turned around. Be stirred in your faith. Go back to the former days and think about how God was so wonderful and how God was so great in your life. And get back to the place now. You're going to be steadfast. You're going to sink your feet back. In. Hey, listen, the greatest thing we can do for Heritage Baptist Church is get ourselves really firmly planted and embedded into the church and say, I'm all in for Jesus Christ tonight. Then in verse 38, be zealous. The just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. 
walking by faith, you plan your schedule around God and not God around your schedule. Let me preach that again to you tonight. Being zealous for God, you plan your schedule around God, not God around your schedule. Then in all things, he might have the preeminence. Saved people are supposed to walk by faith. But pastor, I've done the strategic plan. Yeah, we do strategic planning. But when the strategic plan interferes with faith that God wants to exercise, throw the strategic plan out. Just to live by faith. It's time to rise up. It's time to come to the Spirit of God and embrace the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. Show me where I've despised you. I've put you off. I've declined you. And it wasn't to the significant clash and the substantial conquest that the Syrians, who were the hired mercenaries, made peace with David. You know what I kind of feel like tonight? I kind of feel like a true incident that happened not far from here. Over on Helsing Boulevard. 15 years ago. Over by Helsing Boulevard as it approaches Washington Avenue. There's a railroad track there. Many of you have driven over that. There's a train. There's a train uh, sign that comes off. When the train comes, it comes down. It tells you stop there at the train track. And you know how it goes. There's the flashing lights and you hear the bells to warn you a train's coming. 15, 16 years ago. My wife's oldest sister, her husband who's not saved, had just come out of a development there. They're approaching that intersection. They heard, they heard the, the train track, the bells whistling, the sign coming down. There were about four cars, three cars behind the first one. And the sign came down. They saw this little boy, maybe 10 or 12 years old, on a bicycle, riding his bicycle. And the boy decided he thought he could make it. The track, the, the sign had already come down. The lights were flashing. It was, it, was, it, was, it was still enough light you could see. And they were watching this boy. And the boy got to dart his way as he did so. The train come. The train came and they never saw the boy again. My brother-in-law, who's not saved, was very shaken up. He told us about the incident. He said, I saw it. The flashing lights. The board come down. The boy thought he could make it. The train came. We never saw the boy again. Doing despite of the spirit of grace is saying, I think I can make it. But you can't beat a train. The train will beat you. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Let's not do insult to the spirit of grace. Don't trot underfoot the son of God. Don't treat Jesus with rudeness. Don't insult the spirit says, not today. Not today. Yes, today. Yes, Lord. I'll say yes, Lord. Father, tonight. As we consider First Chronicles 19. 
In 2 Samuel 10, so sad, God's grace was met with grossness. And sympathy was met with scorn. Kindness was met with cruelty. Spirit, your holy God, your, Lord, you're sovereign. You know all things. And Father, I can't help but think along the way that there's a lot of things you've spoken to us about as a congregation, as individuals, as families. About our obedience, about our fellowship, about our walk with God. And Lord, in your grace, you've extended your grace over and abundantly to us. Your abounding mercies. There could be decline. There could be doubting. There could be slothfulness. And help us tonight if there's despising. I don't think it's true. But Lord, this was what's been preached tonight and what you brought across my study this week. I'm asking tonight you'd have your way. Search us, O oh God. Know our hearts. Try us for wicked ways. I pray for Christians to come forth and to just embrace the Spirit of God. Be in love with you. Be in love with your word. Be in love with the practices of God and the things of the Lord. And then tonight, Lord, the message is about God's grace. I pray for someone here tonight who's not saved. Not certain where they're spending eternity, that they would not reject the grace of God. But tonight, accept Jesus as their Savior. Your heads are bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to open the invitation. You come as the Lord leads you. But as you do so, are you here tonight? You're not sure you're saved? Listen, tonight, if you've never come under the blood of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins... You're a sinner bound to the way of hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God wants you to get saved tonight. God wants you to open your heart and call upon the Lord to save you this evening. Would you do that tonight? Who would say tonight, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, but I want to know for sure. Would you pray for me tonight? Is there a man or woman or boy or girl that would say tonight, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, but I want to know tonight. Pray for me tonight. I want to know for sure I'm going to heaven. Is there anyone like that tonight? Please don't spurn the Spirit of God. Would you do so tonight? You're not sure you're saved. Would you do so tonight? Father, have your way in the invitation we pray now. God, we think of how the Scriptures to remind us to think about, call to remembrance the former days, and uh, Lord, to be stirred, be steadfast, and the just shall live by faith to be zealous in our walk. Have your way tonight, we pray. Let's stand, every head bowed and every eye closed. You come tonight and join us at the old-fashioned altar as the Lord makes His works in our hearts tonight. You come this evening. Father, it might be tonight, some have, might be tonight, someone here has been, maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been like these men that, David's men, they were, you've been shamed and embarrassed and hurt somewhere. I want you to know tonight, the Lord meets you. He's come to you tonight to meet you. And you can grow out of it. You can change. God can do that for you. You come tonight. Find His grace sufficient for you. Find His grace working in an extraordinary way in your life. You come tonight. Would you come? Do you know for sure you're saved? 
If you die today, you know for sure you're going to heaven. God invites you tonight to call on His Son, Jesus, to save you. He you come tonight. Lord, thank you for being so gracious, so kind, so loving to us. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. It encourages us about this matter of brotherly kindness. Being careful about God's grace extended to us and being recipients of His grace in a loving, receiving way. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless this week that every one of our church family will have a, a very thriving week, a spiritually fruitful week, beginning just reading our Bibles and praying and seeking God out. I pray tonight you'd have your way in our lives. Thank you for your work tonight. Thank you for the Scriptures being medicine for our heart and help us to grow in the Lord. And tonight, Lord, some are still not saved. I pray before they go home tonight, they would recognize the importance of putting their faith in Christ and getting saved tonight. Thank you tonight for loving us. We pray all these things over you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.